Holy Trinity Brompton in London. It, it was a great church. It was uh, really contemporary. The birthplace of Alpha, really, um, really solid leadership team, uplifting worship. We loved it there. Um, and uh, during their main service, they only celebrated communion once a month. And uh, that seemed okay. When I started training for ordination, uh, we uh, moved to St. Anne's Tottenham, a little bit more traditional than Holy Trinity Brompton, um, but still quite contemporary. And they, too, only celebrated communion once a month. Although the vicar did actually later change that to twice a month. When we came here, I was told that we would need to have a communion service every week. And it's confession time. I actually thought, well, that's a bit of a pain, but we can work around it. And uh, I repent of that now. And I believe that I was wrong to have thought like that. And, and I mention it because probably there's a, a lot of people here who come from different um, denominational backgrounds who perhaps don't receive communion every week. But uh, now I think that was the wrong way to think. That doesn't mean that churches who only uh, receive communion um, once or twice a month uh, are bad churches. The two churches I mentioned are excellent churches. But I personally believe that we should receive communion at least every week. And my reasons for believing that, I think, will become clear as we look into this passage. Earlier in the chapter, Paul praised the Corinthians for holding on to some of the traditions that he had passed down to them. Uh, So they were getting something right, not very much, but they were getting something right. But now in relation to the Lord's Supper, Paul's criticism is is worded in the strongest possible terms. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Imagine being told that when we meet together as a church, we're all worse off for it. I mean, that is a stinging rebuke, isn't it? So how were they celebrating the Lord's Supper, what we would call communion? What were they doing wrong? Well, before I get into that, it's important to understand that the churches that Paul was writing to in the first century were uh, small churches, maybe 30, 40, 50 people who would meet in someone's home. Um, When I say home, imagine uh, a walled compound with a large extended family living there. So maybe something like uh, this, if you can, if you can see that. It's the sort of home that we're talking about. These little churches would have met uh, somewhere like that. So when the church met, Everyone would take some food and uh, they would share a meal together. And what we call communion would be incorporated into that meal. And the closest we get to that um, is on Maundy Thursday uh, when we uh, reenact the Last Supper that Jesus ate with his disciples. So what they were doing, it all sounds quite lovely, doesn't it? except for the fact that the divisions in the church were most noticeable when they gathered for the Lord's Supper. They were were more obvious than ever during that meal. Uh, We've heard previously about the divisions in the church based on the leaders that were favored by various groups, so uh, how they were elevating certain leaders and forming rival groups uh, around them. Um, the leaders themselves, Paul, Peter, Apollos, 
Uh, they didn't want that to be happening. For the most part, they weren't there in person. But that's what was happening, these divisions. And we've heard about the differences of opinion uh, that existed around matters such as eating food that had been sacrificed to idols and how this was causing division and discord. So we know that there was a lot of disunity within this church. But the worst of the division had to do with the Lord's Supper. So they were bringing their food to share, but their sharing had serious limitations. The wealthy were bringing enough to have a feast. The poor often weren't able to bring anything at all. But instead of actually sharing and all eating together, what was happening was the wealthy were going off into an inner room and they were having a banquet. Some of them were even getting drunk. And the poor were left outside with um, very little or even nothing. Uh, needless to say, this was utterly humiliating to the poorer members of the church, um, some of whom may even have been slaves. Just imagine if we divided into two groups for morning tea, and one group had a slap-up morning tea in the staff room with sandwiches and fruit and uh, little spring rolls and cake and all the things we normally have, and the other group were outside with watery tea and a few stale biscuits. I mean, that would be outrageous, wouldn't it? We'd hardly call ourselves a church if we were doing that. <coughs> and that's just morning tea. The Corinthians were dividing into different groups for the Lord's Supper, for communion. Communion is meant to be a unifying meal, but the Corinthians had turned it into something deeply divisive. So much so that Paul says in verse 20, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The church is meant to be a place where the divisions, dividing lines, and barriers that exist within our society are broken down and done away with. Uh, last week, we had International Week, when we celebrated the fact that we all come from different parts of the world, there's lots of different nations represented here. It's a wonderful thing. It's one of the things that makes this church exciting. And we come from various different denominational backgrounds and walks of life, and we have people of all ages and stages of life. And yes, we all have different incomes, but that's okay because we are all one in Christ Jesus. And every one of us has a vitally important part to play in the life of this church. I think it's fair to say that Paul was outraged by what was happening in the Corinthian church. And he says to them, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? In other words, the purpose of your gathering is not to fill your stomachs. And you certainly shouldn't be coming to church so that you can lord it over those in the church that don't have as much as you do. Better not to have a shared meal if that's the form that it's going to take. Paul then reminds them what the Lord's Supper what receiving the bread and wine is really all about. And he takes them back to the Last Supper that Jesus ate uh, with his disciples on the night that he's betrayed. It was the Passover. The Passover was the most important Jewish festival. 
the day was, cele- um, was celebrated and is still celebrated by Jews when uh, God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. You may remember that even though Pharaoh sent nine plagues on Egypt, uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he refused to let God's people go. He refused to let them leave Egypt. The tenth plague was the most devastating. It was the death of the firstborn male in every family. And the Israelites on that occasion had to mark their doorposts with the blood of a lamb so that the angel of the Lord would pass over them, pass over their home, and they would be unharmed. So the firstborn Israelites were spared, and the firstborn male Egyptians died, including Pharaoh's own son. And by the way, Pharaoh, who uh, appears in this account, is probably the most malevolent, evil character in all of Scripture. But he, even he relents at that point. And he allows God's people to go, albeit he changes his mind shortly after that. But he allows them to leave, and they left in a hurry. Uh, they didn't even have time to leaven their bread, to allow their bread to rise, uh, which is why the festival is celebrated with unleavened bread and, of course, the lamb. <coughs> now, ever since that time, uh, in Jewish homes, on the anniversary of the Passover, the head of the household will break that unleavened bread to begin that celebratory meal. In the same way that Jesus broke that bread at that Passover meal with his disciples. But Jesus reconstituted this meal and he made it all about himself. Paul describes it. He says, when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We'll come back to that. But Jesus is there talking about a new covenant, a new covenant. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant, a special agreement with Abraham that he would make his descendants more numerous than the stars and would give them a land of their own. And when Uh, the exodus took place, that's Israel's escape from Egypt, this was um, part of the fulfillment of that covenant. We know they wandered in the desert for 40 years and then did have a land of their own. But the whole of the Old Testament points forward to the day when God would make a new covenant with his people. God promised to soften hearts, to pour his spirit out on all his people. He said that they would have uh, his laws written on their hearts and that he would give them the ability to love and serve him. And he promised to forgive them for all their sins. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. On the night they escaped from Egypt, the Israelites were passed over because they had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, a lamb that had been sacrificed for that purpose. As Christians, God refuses to see our sin or give us the just punishment 
that we deserve for that sin because we are covered by the blood of the true Passover lamb who is Jesus Christ. Jesus gave us the sacrament of communion so that we will never forget that by his death on a cross, our sins have been forgiven and we have been restored to a right relationship with God. This is the most important reality of our lives. If there's one thing that we need to be constantly reminded of, it's this. We are sinful, broken human beings who are completely reliant on a loving Savior to bring us forgiveness, reconciliation with God, fullness of life, and everlasting life. Why do we need to be reminded of that? Well, we forget, don't we? We can forget the most important things. Uh, A few days before we came out here to Australia, a removal company came to our house to pack up all our belongings, load them into a container for shipping. And within a few hours, our house was virtually empty. We just had a few bare essentials to camp in our uh, house for a few days and our suitcases uh, for the flight. And it was all super exciting. And that afternoon, I casually asked Tissa, where did you put the passports? (laughs) And she said, I didn't put them anywhere. And I said, well, where are they then? And she said, don't you know? And I had to admit that I didn't know. And we worked out that they must still be in the filing cabinet that was wrapped in cellophane and bubble wrap and had been taken away with everything else. Anyway, I rang the, uh, the removal company and the person I spoke to was pretty sure that this filing cabinet was at the back of a very full container that they thought may have already left the yard. Anyway, to cut a long story short, that afternoon a van arrived outside our house. They deposited a filing cabinet onto the pavement, had to unwrap it there outside the house, remove the passports, we got them back, we got here. I had to leave it six years before I could tell you that uh, story. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd wonder who it was that you'd uh, got as your, your, um, your new minister. So, um, like I say, we can forget the most important things. And in the business of life, we can forget the most important thing. When we're having a stressful time at work or at home, or when we're ill, or when someone close to us is ill, or when we're under financial pressure with, you know, with all those extra little expenses that always come at the worst possible moment, or we're worried about our kids, or we have more to do than we've got the time, the energy, or the capacity to do, or maybe we've got all of that happening at once. It's very easy to forget that which is most important. So yeah, we need to be reminded that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's Hebrews 6.19. It's one of my favorite verses. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. We need to be reminded that there is a wonderful reality that is eternally secure. That is what communion is. It's a a sacrament, uh, a reminder, a reminder, 
an outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual grace. It's an outward sign of what's, of what's happened to us and in us and through us because of Jesus. Communion enables us to see, touch, and taste the gospel. It looks back to the death and resurrection of Christ, and it looks forward to the time when Christ will return and the whole of creation will be renewed and restored. I appreciate the Anglican Communion service because it addresses many of the concerns that Paul raises in this part of his letter. In the Corinthian church, there was division and bad feeling and broken relationships. In the Anglican church, we share the peace to ensure that communion really is the unifying act that it's supposed to be. You know, when we share the peace, we're not just saying hello to the people around us. We are praying a blessing of peace on our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we shake hands, and I know we've not been able to do that for a while because of COVID, but we will get back to it at some point. Uh, When we shake hands, we're saying, I am at peace with you. I'm good, or rather, we're good. All is well between us. Uh, Paul goes on to explain that uh, receiving communion is a serious thing, not to be taken lightly or done in an unworthy manner, which given the context probably means that we should not be receiving communion against a backdrop of division. If we eat and drink as a divided church, Paul tells us, is not communion. In verse 28, Paul says, everyone ought to uh, examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We examine ourselves not to see if we meet some moral or spiritual standard of perfection. That's not what Paul means. I've, I've heard of people who have refrained from receiving communion because they feel unworthy. Well, we're all unworthy. None of us deserve to be part of the body of Christ. We, we're part of Christ's body. We're part of the church, God's family, uh, as a pure act of grace on God's part. But we should examine ourselves. We should examine ourselves to ensure that we're not harboring any resentment or jealousy or malice or any other sin that can come between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, the Anglican service provides the opportunity for us to examine ourselves. That's why we pray a confession together before we receive communion. Gives us a chance to identify and repent of the sins that damage our relationships with one another and make us feel distant from God. Paul continues, verse 29, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. In other words, when we receive communion, we should be acutely aware of the fact that we are the body of Christ. We should discern that we are Christ's body. Communion is a corporate act that brings us into partnership with one another and with Jesus. So when you receive communion today, and hopefully every time you receive communion, look around you and think to yourself, These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love them, and I will continue 
to stand with them. And let's take that attitude out there when we go out for morning tea. If you see someone on their own, draw alongside them. Have a chat. See how they're going. If you notice that someone is absent from church, give them a call. Check in on them. Send them a message on Slack. Touch base. We don't want anyone in this church to doubt whether or not they belong. I know that many of you are already doing those things, and it's wonderful to see. But it's not enough that we don't have any obvious divisions in our church. We must be proactive about creating and maintaining unity. Uh, Paul does also go on to talk about God's judgment on the Corinthian church, and this would take another whole sermon to unpack. But I want to touch on it because I'd hate for anyone to go away Uh, with the wrong idea. In verse 30, he says that eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is the cause of some sickness and even death within the church. So firstly, this doesn't mean, it does not mean that as a general rule, sickness and death or any other distressing experience or circumstance is the result of God's judgment. But what I think Paul is saying is one, receiving communion is a really important thing. And two, God will sometimes use fairly extreme measures to mold us and shape us into the people that he wants us to be, both individually and collectively as a church. And I'm sure that uh, many of us, if not most of us, if not all of us, have experienced that at some point in our lives. But let's remember that the Corinthian behavior, and if you think back to what I was describing earlier, what they were doing, the extent of the division, the humiliation of the the poor, what the Corinthian church was doing was outrageous. It was outrageous. And it could be that collectively they had stepped out from under God's umbrella of protection to the point where their prayers were no longer effective. God's basically saying, I'm not going to answer these prayers until you sort this out. But there are two key things uh, for us to take away today. Firstly, the profound meaning, nature, and importance of communion. We need to keep in mind the reality that it points to. Christ's death, our forgiveness, our inclusion in God's family, and our unity. That is what communion is pointing to. And second, we need to remember that communion without unity isn't really communion at all. Communion is a unifying meal that brings us into partnership with Christ and with one another. And to be unified, we really need to work on it because we all know that family life can be difficult and there can be tensions and That's the same for us as a family. So this is something, this unity, this love that we share amongst ourselves, this looking out for each other, is something that we really need to continue nurturing and working at. And communion points us to that clearly. And we should, therefore, be receiving it every week. So don't miss receiving communion if you can possibly avoid it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being able to to celebrate the most wonderful news 
that's ever been heard. And we're able to celebrate it every week. One of the children mentioned they'd like to celebrate Christmas every day. Well, celebrating this amazing news every week is a real privilege and a joy. And we pray that you help us to see it that way and to see the, 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 the significance of, of what it means. We thank you that you died for us, that we can be forgiven, that we can be included in your family, that we can receive the gift of everlasting life with you in a renewed and restored creation. We thank you for this reality. And we pray that you impress it upon us uh, week by week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.